Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of November 9th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. Israeli troops have now penetrated the Gaza Strip all the way to the coast and are closing a ring around Gaza City. So brutal street-to-street and house-to-house fighting is clearly about to begin. As the relentless airstrikes continue, the death toll has now exceeded 10,000. So in four weeks of bombing, as many people have been killed as in the nearly four-year siege of Sarajevo in the 1990s. Bibi Netanyahu just announced that Israel will have security responsibility for an indefinite period, quote-unquote, in Gaza after the conflict, as if there's any end in sight here, which there is not. So, While there has been some equivocation on this from Israeli officialdom since Bibi's comment of November 7th, this essentially means de facto reoccupation of Gaza. So the best case scenario here, assuming it doesn't escalate internationally, is virtually permanent Israeli counterinsurgency in the ruins of Gaza, with the population potentially expelled. In case you missed this, the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence is recommending the forcible and permanent transfer of the Gaza Strip's 2.2 million Palestinian residents to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, according to an official document revealed in full by the progressive Israeli website Local Call. The 10-page document, dated October 13th, bears the logo of the intelligence ministry and has been acknowledged by the ministry as authentic. It assesses the options regarding the future of the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip and recommends a full population transfer as its preferred course of action. It also calls on Israel to enlist the international community in support of this endeavor. The document recommends that Israel act to, quote, evacuate the civilian population to Sinai end quote, to establish tent cities and later more permanent settlements in the northern Sinai that will absorb the expelled population and then create, quote, a sterile zone of several kilometers within Egypt and prevent the return of the population to activities slash residences near the border with Israel, end quote. So that's pretty blatant. Uh, Despite its name, the intelligence ministry 
is not directly responsible for any body of the intelligence and security apparatus, but rather prepares studies and policy papers that are distributed to security agencies for review, but are not considered binding. So the existence of the document does not necessarily indicate that its recommendations have been accepted by the Israeli defense establishment. However, there have been many comments to this effect by members of the Israeli leadership. Right-wing MK, member of the Knesset, Daniel Ayalan, openly called for cleansing of the Palestinians from Gaza in an October 13th interview with Al Jazeera. Quote, We told the Gazan people to clear the area temporarily so we can go and take Hamas out, and then, of course, they can come back, said I alone. In a kind of pathetic sugar-coating, he added, quote, We don't tell Gazans to go to the beaches or drown themselves. No, God forbid, go to the Sinai Desert. There is a huge expanse, almost endless space in the Sinai Desert, just on the other side of Gaza. The idea is for them to leave over to the open areas where we and the international community will prepare infrastructure, tent cities with food and with water, just like for the refugees of Syria, end quote. And I alone openly compared Israel's plan for Gaza with the butchery of Assad in Syria, quote, unquote, the butchery of Assad. Yes, really, his words, not mine. And a uh, Likud lawmaker, Ariel Kalner, publicly called on Twitter October 8th for a Nakba in Gaza, quote, unquote. Nakba, of course, being Arabic for disaster, what the Palestinians call the mass displacement of 1948, in which some 200,000 were driven into Gaza in the first place, among a total of some 700,000 Palestinians displaced. Bibi Netanyahu himself is resisting President Biden's calls for a so-called humanitarian pause in the bombing, meaning a window of a few hours in which aid can be delivered from Egypt, a call which certainly does not make Biden less than deeply complicit in what is rapidly escalating toward genocide. All United Nations agencies and aid groups working in Gaza on November 5th issued a joint statement to demand an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, quote-unquote, to allow more relief material into the strip. The statement concluded, quote, it's been 30 days, enough is enough, this must stop now, end quote. Some 450 trucks with humanitarian aid are only just now, within the past week, starting to get through daily. And that is only the level from before the bombing. And obviously, 
the needs are exponentially magnified after a month of aerial bombardment. We noted last week one possibility for the beginning of a de-escalation, the so-called all-for-all plan, which most of the families of the Israeli hostages held by Hamas in Gaza seem to have accepted. All Israelis held by Hamas for all Palestinians held by Israel, many of whom have been detained for years without charge. Now, I would have thought that this necessarily implied an immediate ceasefire to facilitate a transfer of the hostages, at least. But I was disturbed to read over the weekend that families of the hostages blockaded the entrance to the um, IDF headquarters in Tel Aviv, blaming Netanyahu for inaction in getting their loved ones released, but also demanding that the Prime Minister vow no truce until the hostages are released. I'm not quite sure how they square that one. I do not understand how the hostages can be released without a ceasefire. And the bombardment is obviously placing the hostages' lives at risk from Israeli bombs. I note that 74-year-old Vivian Silver, a Canadian-Israeli activist known for her humanitarian work, is among the hostages being held by Hamas. Her group is the Alliance for Middle East Peace. They are engaged in trust-building and coexistence promotion work. You can Google them up. I would imagine that Vivian Silver is not very happy about the hostages, such as herself, being exploited for war propaganda. I note with encouragement that the Statue of Liberty was occupied by hundreds of protesters demanding a ceasefire this Monday, November 6th, an action organized, as most of the big rallies for Gaza here in New York have been, by the group Jewish Voice for Peace. On Saturday, November 4th, there was a national march on Washington for Palestine, bringing out over 300,000, apparently the largest rally in support of Palestine in the history of the United States. I, however had decidedly mixed feelings about this one, as it was organized by groups that have been actively abetting Putin's carnage in Ukraine, most prominently the Answer Coalition, which also abetted the Putin-backed Assad dictatorship in Syria, which has, by the way, bombed Palestinians at the Yarmouk refugee camp outside Damascus. I do not know how anyone can square this. Marching against mass murder with the Bashar Assad fan club? No thanks. Much more disturbingly still, a massive rally for Gaza in Ankara, Turkey, on November 6th, apparently included a sizable contingent of demonstrators with swastikas. And this brings us to the whole sticky question of inappropriate counterproductive responses 
to what is going on in Gaza. I note the depressing poster wars that are happening here in New York. These kidnapped posters have sprung up all over town, reminiscent of the missing posters that were pasted around the city after 9-11. But apparently, some Palestinian supporters, including, it seems, several New York University students in that area of the city, have been ripping the posters down. Not sure I get the logic here. I mean, okay, the hostages are being exploited for war propaganda. Yeah, but that's hardly their fault. And I don't think it helps any to tear down these posters. What, are we supposed to pretend the hostages weren't taken? And in the past few days, someone has started producing and pasting up rival posters with the names and faces of Palestinians killed in the bombing of Gaza with the words murdered by Israel. Okay, I prefer broadening the public conversation by adding posters to tearing down the posters of the hostages. And I certainly recognize the double standard that is being implicitly decried here about the value of Israeli versus Palestinian lives. Absolutely. But there's still an aspect of competing suffering to the dynamic, which I'm not sure is healthy. And I am noting the predictable propaganda disconnect in what I am seeing on Facebook and social media over this past horrific month. So, uh, to my friends on either side, I have this to say. Those of you who can't bring yourselves to say clearly that the Hamas attacks of October 7th were monstrous, indefensible, and illegal, you are being extremely unhelpful and need to rethink things. And those of you who can only invoke the Hamas attacks of October 7th in response to outrage at the far greater criminality of Israel's response since then, you are being even more unhelpful and need to rethink things still more urgently. And then there's the quibbling on both sides. Some Palestine advocates have been saying that some of the Hamas atrocities of October 7th were fabricated. Now, I'm a real stickler for facts, and I understand that we live in an age of fabricated atrocities. It's the bread and butter of internet war propaganda, and the fabrications, if any in this case, muddy the waters in a very dangerous way. But it's kind of superfluous anyway, given the magnitude of what actually happened on October 7th. Does it really matter to the overall moral equation whether some particular atrocities happen to be rumors or fabrications? No. What we know happened was horrific enough. Similarly, 
Many Israel supporters are questioning the numbers killed in the bombardment, saying you can't trust the Hamas-run Gaza health authorities. Maybe the death toll isn't really 10,000, with 4,000 of them children, as is being reported. Okay, I can't exclude the possibility that the figure is inflated, although the UN and most competent human rights bodies are accepting it, and I defer to their judgment to an extent, but okay, so what? If it's really, say, 6,000 Palestinians killed and 2,000 of them children, is that okay? Another thing you hear, both from Israel supporters online and the actual Israeli authorities, is that Hamas is using the population of Gaza as human shields, and that's illegal. And again, okay, I'm not going to argue, but so is bombing the civilians anyway. That's also illegal. Hamas breaking international humanitarian law isn't a license for you to do so, Israel. I mean, if Hamas has tunnel networks under a hospital, you think you have carte blanche to bomb the hospital as ambulances and infrastructure at Al-Shifa Hospital, the Gaza Strip's largest, have been repeatedly hit by Israeli rockets and bombs, with Israel calling the hospital a Hamas nerve center. And this pretense of rigorous targeting is a transparent joke anyway, with hundreds of airstrikes being carried out daily for a solid month in possibly the most densely populated piece of land on the planet. It is really de facto carpet bombing, which was, of course, outlawed by the 1977 Additional Protocol to the Geneva Convention. And then there's the map obsession. There seems to be something of a fetish for antique or historical maps on both sides, on Facebook and social media, as if a snapshot from any particular period in thousands of years of history constitutes any definitive word about contemporary claims or realities. So the Zionists are sharing maps of the biblical kingdom of Israel with this great sense of knowing sanctimony, as if the existence of a kingdom for a couple of centuries, 3,000 years ago, constitutes a cosmic real estate deed that abrogates the rights of anyone else who has lived in the Holy Land since then? I can't believe people view the world this way. And the anti-Zionists are sharing maps from the generation or two before 1948, showing a unified entity labeled Palestine between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea as either a British mandate or a region of the Ottoman Empire, which they don't emphasize. Again, with this great sense of cleverness, it strikes me as painfully ingenuous. We all understand that there was no Israel before the creation of Israel and that the land was called Palestine then. Why is everyone acting like this is some great revelation? The most dogmatic Zionist would not contest this. This really puzzles me. And either way, the question of whether there has ever before been a Palestinian state 
has no relevance to the question of whether the Palestinians are today entitled to self-determination and indeed to survival as a people in that land, which of course they are, that should go without saying, but seemingly not. Then we get into the uglier stuff. All over the world, synagogues and Jewish community centers have been vandalized, usually with graffiti reading Free Palestine, although the one in Kabardino-Balkaria in the Russian Caucasus was scrawled with a more honest slogan, Death to the Yahudi, as well as being set on fire. Here in New York City, the Sholem Aleichem Cultural Center on Bainbridge Avenue in the Bronx was the target of a graffiti attack with the Free Palestine tag. And the Jewish-owned ice cream shop in the Mission District of San Francisco had its windows broken and was hit with the Free Palestine tag. Crystal knocked in the Mission District, eh? Do you idiots have any fucking idea what the association for this kind of thing is for Jews? Do you think getting Free Palestine mixed up with this Nazi shit does anything to advance the cause of a free Palestine? Check your damn heads. Really freaking brilliant tactics there, idiots. Yeah, cynical Zionist conflation of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism has indeed muddied the moral and intellectual waters. But that does not make vandalism of a synagogue or a Jewish-owned shop anything other than anti-Semitism. We don't get to repeat like a mantra, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, and then make excuses for or fail to repudiate shit like this. Okay? That's not how it works. And then there's the dodge of immediately floating the false flag theory, as if Mossad has been responsible for all these synagogue attacks all over the world. Just shut up with that baseless BS. Failing to be clear about this and own up to it as bad propaganda for our side is just bad tactics apart from everything else and plays into the legal silencing of protest against Israel, which is already well underway in Europe, as we discussed in our rant of October 18th, and shows signs of spreading to the U.S. And this brings us to the particular sensitive question I really wanted to discuss tonight. Here's an item that you may have missed. UK Member of Parliament Andy MacDonald, Labour, launched legal proceedings on Friday, November 4th, against fellow MP Chris Clarkson, Tory, over Clarkson's highly defamatory statement, quote-unquote, about McDonald's involvement in a pro-Palestine rally. Clarkson claimed that McDonald's comments at the rally were an attempt to, quote, justify the murderous actions of Hamas, end quote. As a result of the controversy, McDonald is currently suspended from the Labour Party parliamentary bloc, while an investigation into the matter is ongoing in Parliament. Clarkson's allegedly defamatory post on X, that is to say Twitter, 
included a video of McDonald's speech at the rally in which he used the phrase, from the river to the sea, quote-unquote. Home Secretary Suella Braverman characterized the phrase as anti-Semitic and asserted it is widely understood, quote-unquote, as a call for the destruction of Israel. She claimed that, quote, any attempts to pretend otherwise are disingenuous. The phrase, of course, refers to historic Palestine, which lies between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I have been saying for weeks that there needs to be clarity about what this slogan, Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, actually means. Because it is being invoked more and more as an example of supposed anti-Semitism at the rallies for Gaza and so on. And then yesterday, the controversy burst into the headlines on our side of the proverbial pond. On November 7th, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 234 to 188 to censure Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat, Michigan, over her remarks related to Israel and Palestine. 22 Democrats joined nearly all Republicans to pass the resolution, which accuses Tlaib of, quote, promoting false narratives, end quote, surrounding the Hamas attacks of October 7th and, quote, calling for the destruction of the state of Israel, unquote. In defense of this accusation, the resolution cited Tlaib's embrace of the phrase, from the river to the sea a pro-Palestinian rallying cry that has been deemed anti-Semitic by the Anti-Defamation League, reading from a news account here. The resolution called the phrase, quote, a genocidal call to violence to destroy the state of Israel and its people to replace it with a Palestinian state extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, end quote. Tlaib responded on Twitter, quote, from the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. My work and advocacy is always centered in justice and dignity for all people, no matter faith or ethnicity, end quote. So, again, there seems to be a very deep disconnect here. I will point out, just by way of example, a recent report on PBS NewsHour, October 30th, Israel-Hamas war leads to increase of anti-Semitic threats on college campuses, in which it was simply accepted that that slogan means the destruction of Israel and is anti-Semitic. And it is, in fact, widely heard at the rallies for Gaza. I've heard it repeatedly here in New York. And the context for this slogan has been, or the context for the controversy over the slogan, has been its association with the rejectionist position of Hamas and the pre-Oslo PLO. And it invokes, for many Israelis and Jews, the specter of driving the Jews into the sea, as it is usually phrased. And it isn't like we didn't just witness 1,400 Jews, mostly civilians, killed by Hamas 
on October 7th. That happened. We can understand the historical reasons it happened. Interminable oppression, which is what the people of Gaza have been facing for generations, often explodes in such paroxysms. Again, contrary to the French saying, no, to understand all is not to forgive all. Nonetheless, it happened. And it isn't like synagogues aren't being vandalized. From San Francisco to the Bronx, to Madrid, to Berlin, to Tunisia, to Kabardino-Balkaria. And if our side does not make clear what we mean by that slogan, we are playing right into the hands of those who would silence us. Okay, so let's examine what is being said here. Again, the House resolution called the slogan, quote, a call to destroy the state of Israel and its people to replace it with a Palestinian state extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, end quote. But this is a somewhat question-begging construction. What does destroy the state of Israel mean? A two-state solution has been moribund for a generation now. A generation more than a generation, in fact, that has seen an intifada on the West Bank and five major military campaigns in Gaza, including this one. A dramatic increase of illegal settlement on the West Bank, where, by the way, some 130 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli soldiers and settlers over the past month. The Palestinians can't be expected to wait interminably for a state, as opposed to the kind of pseudo-state under Israeli occupation and illegal settlement that they now have on the West Bank. And I will add that the Zionist dream of anti-Semitism withering away in a world in which the Jews will have their own state and sovereign territory and can be respected among the family of nations, has manifestly failed, as is evidenced by the broken glass in the Mission District and the torched synagogues in Berlin and Kabardino-Balkaria, and more than failed, proved utterly counterproductive due to its own inherent contradiction and the racist fallacy of its founding myth a land without people for a people without land, which rendered the Palestinian Arabs invisible. So it is long overdue that the terms for the debate be thoroughly rethought. So, if by Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, we mean not a land purged of Jews, just as the extremist Zionist dream of a land purged of Arabs is now being terrifyingly mainstreamed in Israel, but rather a single secular state in all of historic Palestine where Jews and Arabs, Muslims, Christians, and Druze, and secularists, and the non-observant 
can all get along in peace and dignity with equal rights, obviating the need, hopefully, to worry over much about who's in the majority. If that's what you mean, I'm with you. Yeah, I'd like to see that between the river and the sea. Indeed. And I'll go better. Being an anarchist, I can't help but invoke the possibility of a no-state solution, a decentralized Middle East federation of autonomous communities and worker assemblies bound by principles of voluntary association. Utopian? Sure. But no more so than the sensible discourse of consensus reality, if you will, that would cling interminably to the false hope of a two-state solution. And by advancing such ideas, we at least begin to move the debate in the right direction. Now, obviously, the most critical thing now, far and away, is to demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And in such a desperate situation, utopianism can seem self-indulgent. But I submit that by most exactingly and explicitly hashing out and articulating our long-term vision, the more tactically effective we will be in advancing the immediate and urgent demand because it will clear the intellectual and moral waters that have been so muddied by cynical propaganda. And to articulate the general spirit in which we should begin and the central idea that we should be advancing, I turn to the words of the great Palestinian scholar and intellectual freedom fighter, Edward Said who wrote in a New York Times op-ed way back in 1999, quote, I see no other way than to begin now to speak about sharing the land that has thrust us together and sharing it in a truly democratic way with equal rights for each citizen. There can be no reconciliation unless both peoples Two communities of suffering resolve that their existence is a secular fact and that it has to be dealt with as such. End quote. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. We really need your support to keep going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the counter vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.